Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay, ta-da! The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Welcome to this show, Let's Do Lunch, with me, Jenny Tishy. I am a registered nutritionist and author of several cookery books, an absolute foodie, and I love spanning the world of the food industry as well as creation of nutritious recipes, etc. So I invite a series of guests onto this show that also do that, that are from different areas of the food industry, are from the world of nutrition, they might be food producers, farmers, etc., So each Friday, we welcome a guest onto this show to talk about any and all of those issues. And today is no different. Today, I am joined by Georgina Stewart, who actually is, I mean, fascinating. So she's the founder of the Nutrient Gap, which is designed to support food businesses, including cafes, restaurants, startups, etc., with regulation and labelling advice. Georgina is an expert in the legal side of food production and food service, and she's just got the most incredible CV. So I can't wait to talk to her. Georgina, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Jenny, for inviting me onto your podcast today. Oh, well, I'm really pleased to have you. And I'm going to be um, asking lots and lots of questions and getting lots and lots of knowledge, hopefully, (laughs) out of you to share with our listeners. (laughs) So um, please do share with our audience a little bit about who you are, uh, where you come from, and what it is that you do. Okay, so I'm Georgina Stewart, and um, as Jenny said, I own a company called The Nutrient Gap. Um, It's not been established that long, it's um, just over two and a half years, but I do have a a good background in food and nutrition and catering. Um, I'm 52 years old, believe it or not, and um, I live with my husband and my dog, Crackles, and uh, we live in uh, a village in East North Um, So I look after the moment, I look after food businesses and I make them legal when it comes to labelling. The easiest way to explain it is you can go into a supermarket, say for example Aldi, you walk in there, you pick up a packet of biscuits and there's information on that packet. And that's what I do. I actually help um, the marketing team to make sure the um, compliance is right when it comes to the marketing and the um, So the health claims, the nutrition on the actual um, packaging and also looking at the ingredients, looking at the supply chain and also profiling the allergens as well. Um, That's sort of a a long process with the design of a new product, but actually be quite a small process in a big thing. So that's what I, I tend to do. And I also work with small companies as well, helping them with their new product development. That is absolutely fascinating and actually such a critical part of the production. I mean, we'll come on to this, but there are lots of new food businesses that have arisen um, and actually probably in the same time frame as your business has been uh, in existence. So we'd love to talk about talk about that. But where does your interest in food stem from? 
<laughs> well, it was way back to when I was a child. My mum was an, an amazing cook. Um, and it was typical growing up in the 70s. You, you go home from school to lunch and you had a proper sit down meal with your mum and dad. Dad came home from work and then go back to school. And then the evening we had sandwiches. We were very much like that kind of family. Um, so we always had good hearty meals. Um, we always had plenty of vegetables. We um, had, you know, super pudding. My mum was an amazing um, pudding maker. I think that's my problem with my, my nutrition at the moment with all, <laughs> all the puddings I eat. Um, but also basically, you know, Sunday lunches were proper Sunday lunches. We sat down, had the meal with the whole family. It was a very important part of a Sunday. Um, and I, I basically got really interested in home economics and I did my O-levels in home economics. Then I went on to doing A-level home economics. Uh, I was the only person in the school to do that. I had to move to another school to do that, the girls' school, because I was at a mixed school at the time. Um, and I did biology as well. I had a placement in um, Birmingham College um, for food and art. I wanted to be a, a food journalist. But at the time when I when I passed my exams, they rang me up and said, Where are you are you know, are you coming? I said, I can't do it. <laughs> I just couldn't go to university. I was a very young 18-year-old. Uh, I just couldn't leave home. So that's really where my interest in food was. I loved it. I loved the whole concept of food. I loved the whole concept of uh, nutrients and what it was all about and the processes. I know we did a a big um, discussion in my A-levels about cheese making processes and um, how people used to whip up their egg whites with um, pallet knives. And these days we, we do it with uh, whisks, you know, and it's so interesting of how, how they did it to get the air into the actual egg and everything. And, and that's, that's how it's progressed, really. I absolutely like, you know, you really made me feel very nostalgic. The, the <laughs> concept of, you know, the father coming home and sitting down for your main meal at lunchtime yes. uh, and then the, the concept of the sort of the lighter meal in the evening which actually you know yeah. from a nutritional perspective would do us all some good wouldn't it but we yeah definitely and we basically when we had friends over when we invited them over for tea you know after school it was a shock to some of them the friends you know you could have sandwiches <laughs> in the evening <laughs> yeah we'll go yeah mm, really <laughs> it was that. a total shock <laughs> mm, but you know it's interesting because I have interviewed for the it's not been going that long this podcast but I have interviewed lots of people from different cultural backgrounds and it's, it seems to me that this is something that we've sort of lost in our culture and actually probably more recently in other cultures too but it is quite yeah. a traditional thing isn't it to sit down with your family on a daily basis and to enjoy yeah. your main meal in the middle of the day whether that's you know 12, 1, 2, whatever it is but then to have the lighter evening meal it is something that we I, f I feel like a bit sort of sad really that we don't have that opportunity anymore and that the evening yeah. Yeah, meal is the absolutely. big one mm. yeah absolutely we're so busy and people can't tend to well they won't lend some time to have a lunch time out they'll just constantly work and now I'm working from home I make a particular um thing about lunchtime with my husband and we sit down um you know between half past 12 and half past one and we have a meal mm. and that's something that we actually do so I'm hopefully bringing this back into my family life now because it's so much easier and then if I need to work later in the evening I don't have to rush around getting a uh, you know, a big hearty meal. It can be just, you know, egg on toast or something really simple like that. That, that makes total sense. I would think it would be lovely. Maybe we should start a campaign to bring back the big yes. lunch and the lighter evening <laughs> yes. meal. And if I could just pick up on, um, so you did A-levels or O-levels, then A-levels. Um, so home economics, biology, you moved into A-level with. Um, 
what was it that kind of uh, inspired you to study those two together? Because I think it's quite unusual, yet they go very well together. Was it just because you were so fascinated in the sort of the science behind the creation of food and how it interacted with the human body? Yeah, absolutely. It really was. And to be honest with you, it was the only two O-levels apart from maths that I actually passed. Oh, <laughs> so you really needed to take them. As well. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? No, That's not a bad question. choice. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was definitely. I, I, I'm the sort of person if I'm really get into it and I'm, re, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm enthusiastic about about it. I, I can learn better. Mm. Uh, everything else to me was boring. History was boring. It didn't really, you know, help me in any way. But this was just so intriguing. And like O level is really um, with um, sorry biology is really good with home economics because of the processes. Mm. I wish I'd studied chemistry because that would have helped as well. But at the time, chemistry was boring. <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. It's just, it's a tough subject, and I think if you can't relate it to what you're specifically interested in, yes. if it's a little bit more generic, which I think it is at that stage, then it doesn't kind of yes. um, wash, does it? And then, so going back to your childhood with regard to, you know, your, you were eating proper meals. So I was going to ask you about any particular sort of childhood brands that you connected with. Were there any that you were particularly a sort of, you know, that you, you felt very strongly towards or that really remind you still now of your childhood? I certainly do. Um, <laughs> I mean, Ribena, we drank loads of it. Absolutely. I don't know actually who makes it now. Is it GlaxoSmithKline? I'm not quite sure, but definitely Ribena was the drink. I think mum just thought it was <laughs> the perfect drink because it got plenty of vitamin C in it. Um, lemon and barley water, that was a, a, an absolute must. Um, so they were the two drinks we were allowed to drink. We weren't allowed to drink any fizzy drinks. But I do remember when we used to pester mum about having a fizzy drinks, and we had the Corona Pop Man come round. So if that yes. gives you some sort of, if you remember them. <laughs> yes. And it was, uh, I mean, the feel of the bottle, because they had all the little knobbly bits on the top, but also it was a dandelion and burdock, the ice cream soda and the limeade. And they were just so, and last year, um, sorry, two years ago, I had my 50th birthday and I had a 1970s party and we had to have those pops there for my party because it was just nostalgic at the end of the day. And but you, yeah, definitely Madeline and Burdock. And you know what? I mean, things go around in cycles, don't they? But I seem yeah. to remember that you used to bring your bottle back and you used to get money off. Um, yes. And then when it, so it was, I mean, it was actually really environmentally friendly, wasn't it? We weren't yeah. buying plastic yeah. bottles of pop. So when we did have the pop, we were buying these glass bottles, but we were recycling them, reusing them, going back and getting them refilled, basically. Yeah, you know? Absolutely. Interesting. And now it's coming round again with refill shops, isn't it? And we yeah. are looking at. I mean, in in Europe, they're doing. They do a lot of um, glass packs and, and refill bottles with their pot bottles and everything. And I think we're going to be following suit, but you know, very shortly. We need to. Yeah. No. Absolutely, we do. And I was laughing at the um, the inclusion of ribena um, and lemon <laughs> barley water, which, of course, you know, are nothing like fizzy drinks. But from a nutritional perspective, we know to contain quite a lot of sugar, certainly in their yeah. original form. But the fact they were made by pharmaceutical companies I can imagine back in the day that being okay that got the nod from the parents because well if it's a pharmaceutical company it must be doing my child some good absolutely yes <laughs> very funny so um you started out in the world of catering um what was it that you love most about that role I, I think I started straight after my a-level so I didn't actually um, go out to work in inverted commas so I didn't know any better 
uh, if you if you know what I mean. Mm. So I, I'd love being my own boss. Didn't know any better because I'd never had a, a, a proper job to go to because it was straight from school into the business. Um, but I also loved the creative side of it. Um, doing a job that you love makes you want to get up in the morning. And I think that's really important. And I couldn't wait for the next day. Um, as the business was getting more and more established, I really enjoyed talking to lots of different people. I met loads of different people, um, even towards the end of my, my career in, in the industry, lots of famous people as well. Um, and it was just really it was just really exciting to create something for somebody's wedding. And, you know, there were thrilled to bits that made their memories for their day. Um, we did lots of business catering and contract catering and also funerals as well, believe it or not. We, we had quite a few contracts with funeral directors around the area and we did funerals and, and teas and wakes and they were lovely. People were so grateful that we just took the pressure off them. They didn't have to think about it. So yeah, it was um, very diverse very different indeed but yeah loved it at the time I'd love to find out so we're talking sort of you went straight from school into catering which is incredible that you're in your your own boss at what 18 19 which is 19 yeah yeah whoa um so we're talking roughly early 90s here late 80s early 90s aren't we what sort of foods were you making for people then at the start, it was very simple foods because the sort of late 80s, it was started in 89, the company. So um, and then you started to see lots of different trends as you're going into the 90s. But it was to start with the very basic buffet of the sandwiches, the scotch eggs, the pork pie, egg and crest sandwiches, you know, that type of thing. And as I moved into the catering, into different areas like the contract catering, it was more it was more the hot meals um then i was doing lots of things for the borough council so it was more events and uh, balls and that type of thing so we were doing um ham chauffeur so it was like big big hams on on the stand and we we did it in the chauffeur sauce and we glazed it with aspic that was quite popular Uh, and the salmon as well whole salmons uh, i mean that was a bit of a trend for the first couple of years in the 90s and then the trend started to go to more of the um, sort of nibbles, the dips, the dim sums, the little samosas, spring rolls, that type of thing, and um, prawns and uh, easy pickup foods and canapes. So you saw the big trend from the more sort of garier sort of brown and brown pork pie type of food, the brown buffet, as I call it, <laughs> all the way through to the most glorious ham chauffeurs and um aspic um, creation so yeah it was very very diverse I love that it's just like a sort of plotted history of of the food trends it was a a way of showing off I suppose in some ways wasn't it to I mean a whole salmon for example I mean that's just sort of look at me look what we can produce and look what we can serve our guests absolutely absolutely and people loved it Uh, I think they liked the fact that they were especially when we were doing lots of things for the guild hall with the mayors uh, you know and everything and their their sort of internship um you know got councillors there and they absolutely loved the fact that we were doing all these lovely posh buffets and food for them (laughs) it was great brilliant absolutely brilliant so I mean I'm sure running a catering company is really hard work I have family members that have been involved in the industry and like the hours are ridiculous so what were some of the challenges that you faced I think the most challenging thing was the long hours um Obviously, starting at the age of 19, um, I was going into, you know, I wanted a social life as well. That I, My social life was ruined, basically. Um, 
and I also I struggled when when the company got bigger I struggled with staff because I couldn't understand why staff didn't have the same ethics work ethics as myself I didn't understand you know but why should they at the end of the day I was the boss I was the creator I was the one who, who had the drive you know they worked for me they probably didn't have the same drive and I didn't really understand that until I went into full-time employment um it completely different and it was basically hard as well being a younger person and employing chefs and a kitchen manager who were older and a lot more knowledgeable than me as well. And that was because of because of their history and because of um, their knowledge and they've been in the industry longer than me. And that that was the hardest thing as well uh, regarding the business. That That's tough, isn't it, when you are yeah. employing people that are not only are they more knowledgeable, but there's a reason they don't run their own business, but then they don't necessarily acknowledge that reason. So you are in the firing line, aren't you, in that situation? Yes, I've been in that situation myself. It's not an easy one. Um, And then in terms of the running of the catering company, I'm sure there's a lot that you learned that you were then able to take into your next role. I mean, were you sort of, did you feel that you were observing things that you felt, okay, well, this is where I'm going to go next because I can see that this area needs addressing. Is that how the transition happened? In, in, a, in a way, um, I was very conscious about um, people's special diets when I was mm. um, in the catering industry. Um, more and more people were coming forward to be vegetarian, so we were ending up doing different uh, dishes for them and, um, you know, labelling all the vegetarians. Then then the vegan sort of movement came towards the end of, of my career in the catering business. And again, we were creating different kinds of vegan foods. Very difficult at the time in the 90s because there wasn't a lot about and people hadn't explored veganism as much. It was very much lentils and, you know, soya milk. Um, and that was um, sort of really of an interest to me. But I think I got to a point when I was 32 that I'd had enough. I'd, I'd basically um, been been there, done there, got the T-shirt and was so tired. I decided to change my career and went into charity work for a while. And then when I got towards my late 30s, I decided for myself that I'd go back to school and do my um, sports nutrition and human nutrition exams, uh, which I did. And I went to work in various gyms. Um, I got really into sport, went to work in various gyms. I did talk on diets and health. Uh, I worked in a spa. And then I began to see as the, tre- as it, the trends changed that labelling really was really important because people who wanted to eat well couldn't understand what the actual label meant on the actual products they were buying and I thought you know I need to help the consumer but also I need to help the businesses as well so I then sort of turned the tables and did more exams I had a stint with trading standards working with them for a while helping small companies online running their businesses and then I I, um, decided to set up the nutrient gap with the help of you know a mentor to get guide me into what I should be studying and how I, what I should be doing. So yeah, it was very very different. Doesn't very it? Different indeed. It, it just goes to show, though, doesn't it? I mean, you've had all of those years of experience, yeah. well, thirteen years of experience working in catering. So you can see yeah. it from very much the coalface perspective. You can see that there is this need. Trends are changing, but also, I mean, I, I can say from a nutritional perspective as well, we have this. Um, increasing demand for uh, free from and it is a demand and a need um, from sense yeah. perspectives which we'll, we'll come on to but you can see very much from working within the catering industry how 
that brief, that break that you had, break still working, but working with yeah. charities, but the, that you break from new, the world of nutrition and labeling and food, but bringing yourself back into it again was, it's just so obvious where the, the need was. Um, Definitely. I would love to explore that a little bit further. Let's have a little break, but after the break, we'll come back and we'll be talking about why there is such a need for uh, a focus in this area. Windsor, Windsor, Ascot, Ascot Maidenhead, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Bracknell Wokingham, Wokingham, Henley, Henley Reading. Reading. Okay. The Voice, River Radio of the Thames Valley. Welcome back to this show. Let's do lunch. I'm Jenny Tishi, a registered nutritionist, and today I'm joined by Georgina Stewart, who is founder of the Nutrient Gap. She's an absolute expert in the legal side of food production and food service, working with cafes, restaurants, food businesses, food startups. Um, And we've been talking all about uh, Georgina's fantastic experience and background in the world of catering, very much at the coalface, very much understanding what people's needs, requirements and the changing trends are in the food market. But also now uh, with nutrition qualifications and working in the area of food labelling and regulation. I would love, Georgina, for you to tell me a little bit about why uh, the needs of the market are so great right now. You know, why is there such a need for labelling and food compliancy? Yeah, of course. I mean, the regulations, for the, the, the food labelling regulations are there for the consumer. It's basically to, to protect them, um, to prevent any sort of mislabeling and any misleading uh, the descriptions of the food. Um like I say, it's all about the correct information on the product to, so consumers can make a confident and informed food choice based on their diet, their allergies, their personal tastes, and also the cost. And um, it also is about not deceiving the consumer. It creates unfair competition with manufacturers or traders. And, and also everyone needs the right to know what they are eating. And that's part of my, my role to make sure that food businesses are being transparent with their labels so the consumer does have the, um, the actual choice. So it's really important that they get it right. Um, and we've often seen many a, a times um, on recalls, um, you know, companies are saying, oh, we recall this pasta because it's not declaring the pistachio nuts in it or, or something silly like that. And you're thinking, what? But, you know, it's because down the food line or down the food chains, no one's being transparent or honest with their ingredients. And this is the problem. And this is where, you know, the biggest problem is. And that's why labelling is so important. You raised something really interesting there about food brands being deceptive, whether, you know, accidentally or deliberately, but it being an unfair situation versus their competition. Do you ever get involved in any of the sort of legal cases where perhaps one brand is bringing another brand to court because they do feel that they're being unfairly, uh, well, competitive, deceptive in that in that way? Is that something you get involved in? No, that's nothing I, I actually get involved in, with, but I'm sure if somebody asked me to help them with a court case, I'm sure I'd be able to help them in, in that respect. It actually brings me on to, um, you know, where the blame culture is as well, because um, there was a a while back where there was a a spice being brought in from China and it was cinnamon. I believe it was cinnamon, but they were actually um, they were actually next to a nut factory. And they bought the the spice came in and then the spice was used. And then there was a lot of allergic reactions to nuts uh, because they hadn't actually disclosed where they are and that's so important 
as well within the supply chain. And this is something that I really want to change within in the industry to be able to have better transparency with the food um, data sheets and where, for example, food is grown. Um, believe it or not, Scotch bonnet peppers, sometimes their compost on those are with fish bones. Um, wow. So if anybody is, yeah, if anybody is actually allergic to fish and they they have, say, a, a chili sauce or something, if it's not declared on there, then they're going to be allergic and be really poorly. So this is why it's so important for the transparency. And this is where I come in to really double check everything when it comes to, to claims and allergens and things like that. Gosh, that's incredible, isn't it? I mean, I think the, yeah. the point is we're so far removed now from where our food comes from. I know, you know, I was, it sounds ridiculous, but I was watching a programme the other day about um, why scarecrows came into existence. Uh, this is, <laughs> sounds like a very tenuous link, but I'll get there. Basically, the, the youngest and the eldest people from the farming community were uh, hired to scare away the birds because obviously it was actually such an important role because that food was required to feed the people within that very vicinity you know people knew where their food was coming from they could trace it that's my point but you can't now we don't know if our cinnamon's coming from china and our scotch bonnets are being a compost is being used that has fish bones in it you know we have we have no idea where how you know it's been made how it's been transported what's been next to it when it's been transported what it may have been placed next to perhaps even in storage there's so much that we don't see and I guess that's the reason that you have to exist isn't it absolutely yeah definitely and it, it is about that supply chain and it's really important um, not every manufacturer is bad, you know, that we've got some great manufacturers out there and I work with some fantastic um, companies, but I find this is something that we need to instill into the new products that are coming out. The, the products, um, as we said earlier, um, since lockdown, a lot of people have been baking from home and selling their goods online and everything else. And it's those people I really need to sort of reach out to, to be able to explain uh, not to dictate to them or reprimand in any way, but just to give them that understanding that this could potentially be a hazard to your business and you do need to take stock and understand why this is so important. It's all very well baking sauces and selling them online, but you know where are those ingredients coming from? You know, are you working in the kitchen that doesn't have, you know, any cross contamination and everything else? So that's really important as well. It's it's very true, actually, isn't it? I think if you've never had um, or created food or prepared anything for somebody that has got a food allergy, if it's beyond your uh, frame of reference, then you don't necessarily take into consideration how easy it is for things to become contaminated. And whilst you might be the best chef in the world, or you might have the most wonderful sauce, uh, you know, ingredients for sauce, etc., that you want to sell to others, if you don't know where the products or the ingredients for that are coming from, you can't make claims for it, can you? And, and neither would some people even think to do that. So it is about making people aware. Um, so that, that moves us on uh, nicely. I know you are an expert in something called Natasha's Law, which I know quite a bit about, um, but also Owen's Law, which I'm not so familiar with. But for the benefit of those listening, could you share what those laws are and how they affect the food industry? Yes, of course. Well, Natasha's Law came into effect October last year, and it's really about um, 
stricter requirements for pre-packaged foods. Now, with the actual food industry, labelling is really important when it comes to ingredients, as we said, and um, on, you know, like your biscuits and everything else, it will actually show the ingredients and all the allergens that are in that ingredient bolded. But in the past, pre-packaged foods would never have that on. And um, this is why Natasha's laws has come into effect because Natasha, um, she was a young teenager, um, Natasha Edmund Laparus, I hope I've said the, the surname properly. And I don't know if you remember the story, um, she actually had an anaphylactic um, uh, fit um, through having sesame seed in um, a sandwich from pret a yeah. And this is because there wasn't any ingredients on the actual, um, you know, baguette or stating what actually um, is in there and also um, what allergens are in there. So the family, you know, took this to court. It's a, it's a high, high profile case. And um, since then, the Food Standards Agency has recognised the need to change for allergen information labelling on pre-packed um, foods. So it's basically food that, say, a cafe's making and they're making sandwiches and they're putting them in the sandwich um, counter already prepared because... When they're already prepared, uh, the consumer can't change it. If it's made in front of you, the consumer can tell you what they can and can't have. Mm -hmm. So that's okay. But it's when the, uh, people are like grab and go, they're picking it up, they need to be able to know what's actually in those sandwiches. And yeah, that, that's, that's, I, I, that's, so that's what, so Natasha's law, basically anything that has been made either on site or that is being sold on site, but it's been made fresh, has to now have all of the labelling and declare Absolutely. any of the allergens. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Because when I was actually in the catering, we we actually worked for a vending company making sandwiches for them, put them into those sandwich cones and then just putting cheese and pot, you know, cheese and onion sandwich. And that was all was on there. Wow. And that, this was way back in the nineties. So you can see the difference now. It would have to be all to do with the wheat and the sandwich and uh, 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 the bread, all to do with the cheese and highlighting the allergens. Uh, mm. If it was mayonnaise, highlighting the eggs. So that's why it's really important. Um, it's not just now a cheese and mayo sandwich. It's actually yeah. quite an allergic sandwich. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so. that's right. Exactly. It is when you break it down into its component yeah. parts. It's the component parts that might cause problems and where those component Definitely. parts have come from. So uh, claims need to be made if there's possible cross-contamination as well, don't they? Absolutely. And so what so about going on to yeah, Owen's Law? Owen's yeah. Law, yeah. Yeah, so Owen's Law, it hasn't actually come into effect as yet, but the family are really campaigning it and I believe it will, will get to law at some stage within the the next 18 months so it was a young lad Owen Carey and um, he ordered a chicken burger from Byron Burgers and he had a, a number of allergens uh, allergies sorry and when he asked the staff what the, the chicken was cooked in they said oh it's just a plain grilled chicken but in actual fact it'd been marinated in buttermilk which Owen was really allergic to and he obviously died of a consequence of that so what the family are campaigning for is to make sure when you actually eat out at a restaurant, you would have the full list of allergens on the um, restaurant menu. Um, I think that's a fantastic idea. I think it really gives choice to people when they're eating out because if you've got really strict um, problems with, with, with eating out because you have all these allergies, it doesn't make you inclusive. It makes you quite scared about going out and you're constantly asking or you're the, the person who's sort of like... Um, in the group who's obviously ruined it for everybody else as such. Mm. I know because I'm a vegan and I, I struggle with that sometimes. Um, but it's actually um, 
becoming more and more acceptable for restaurants to have these like QR codes so you can just scan them and it will tell the consumer exactly what's in each dish or exactly what's you know allergens are in there and I think it's sort of like mirroring effect from the Natasha's law and, and I do believe it's it's something that should be coming to practice they, sooner rather than later. They go hand in hand really don't they those two Definitely. laws I mean it's about transparency across the board whether you're buying something that's being pre-packaged whether you're buying something that's being served to you in a restaurant you want that information and I totally get that not wanting to stand out yeah. particularly I do actually remember the Owens Law case because wasn't he out with his girlfriend and he's a, yes what, that was it yeah, yeah. yeah. and he, 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 was, he was a teenager as well I mean you, I've got teenagers you don't want to be that person that says awkwardly you know can I just can I just and even if you are that person that's willing to because of course this is a life-threatening condition if you were to be exposed to that he did ask and it still wasn't made clear to him yeah yeah that's you know and these are two high profile cases but I mean there is now a much greater focus generally on allergens in foods and the labeling of allergens um I mean it's clear in these two cases that you know that resulted these were fatal cases so they are and and the parents of those two children are doing wonderful things to create such uh, a change in the industry but why do you think um, the whole uh, allergy area has become so much more of a focus well it's, it's all down to saving lives and I think that's really important mm. because there's so many fatalities uh, with with allergens and um, I was doing, looking at some stats the other day and uh, it affects about one to two percent of adults. They, they have a food allergy and then children are bigger. I mean, you'll find that children have more allergies, but they, they tend to grow out of them. But that that is around about five to eight percent of just children alone. So roughly I worked that out to equate to around about two million people. And that figure doesn't actually include people with food intolerances because an allergy is one thing, but there are people who have food intolerance or intolerance to gluten and various other things. So it's not life-threatening, but a very uncomfortable process for them. So it, the important thing is, A, saving lives and also giving choice and confidence for people with allergens so they can actually go out and be more inclusive. Um I also think as well, it's really important too, because just touch on this, um, myself being vegan, my husband being vegan, and people do have food preferences. And just because it's vegan doesn't mean it doesn't have a may contain statement. So sometimes you'll find a vegan food that says at the bottom may contain egg or may contain cheese. Now to me and my husband, we're not bothered about that. We, we're not as strict as some vegans, but if you have an allergy to egg or cheese or, or milk and you think, oh, well, I'll be all right to eat vegan food, it, and yeah. then you can't because it's a may contain, you completely, you know, it's, and I think it's looking at those sort of statements as well, the may contain statement for people. And this is something I'm, I want to try and campaign against is and going down to um, looking at the food chain again is, there shouldn't have to be a may contain statement. Every ingredient should be able to, we can, we can actually agree that there are natural allergens in food and that's fine. We bold them on the labeling, but the may contain statement, a lot of people are putting them on unnecessarily mm. and they're basically getting rid of them, the different sections of the market because they're, they're excluding people and people won't eat their products because they're too worried about being fined or people dying so they're putting all their allergens on just to cover their backs and that's not necessary and it's not helpful so actually look, I want to do, yeah yeah and then so looking at it from the perspective of the food producers they could be opening up their market to a much wider range of people Absolutely. If they didn't 
put this may contain, which I understand people feel that they need to to cover their backs. But the point is, going from the consumer's perspective, yes, we want to save lives, but we also want to make sure that people are not only surviving, but they have choice. And so from both perspectives, it seems to make sense that your role can improve both the choice that the consumer has and widen the market for the producer. It just seems to make so much sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And people don't realise, you know, you don't need to put that on. If you're following your right procedures with your HACCP and everything else within your, you know, wiping down and your food chain and everything else, why why put it on? And I often hear, because I'm scared. But if you've got the statements and, and the systems in place, you don't need to. And that will stand up in the court of law. You've seen due diligence and you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Nothing zero risk at the end of the day. These things do happen, but you don't go to a shop and advertise that you've got salmonella on your menu, do you? It no, could happen. exactly. It could happen. But, you know, we may contain, you may know. contain. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, may contain salmonella. <laughs> just in case, cover my back. Um, but it is interesting. There's quite a high profile. I mean, at the moment, um, yeah, we've got great British menu on the TV and it's been on the last three evenings. So you've got Tom Carriage there, who's one of the judges this year for the first time. And he's got a, 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 a shellfish allergy. And so, oh. you know, but that more could be made of that because I know I don't want to you know highlight Tom Carriage is local to here and I, I but I think you know more could be made of it because here is such a high profile chef and all they say on the TV is simply oh so they're going to make him a an alternative but you know it'd be quite nice to show the chefs you know doing wiping down you know all of the practices that need to be put in place to make this yeah. safe for him you, you know you don't really want to be doing any damage to your judge uh so it'd be nice if they were to share <laughs> that, that. Be very good, it? no <laughs> um but you know it would be lovely if they could be more transparent so maybe you know things like that that would make thing that would make this much more of a sort of uh an obvious area that needs to be focused upon i think would be great from both perspectives um now perhaps yeah. if we could move on to brexit uh oh. the b word it's another challenge isn't it to many food businesses and i know that you advise organizations on this subject so what are some of the biggest challenges to the food industry that have been created by brexit Oh, it's food stuck at ports and not coming in or not going out. <laughs> Loads of problems, but we're overcoming them. I think uh, basically it's like the trade deals, it's the costs, it's the paperwork, it's the different things you have to, you know, bend over backwards for importing and exporting. I mean, even though we in UK, we're harmonised with the EU um, regulations 1169 2010, um, we will actually see over time the UK will probably come away from these regulations, which will mean a bigger impact on the retail products and changing labels uh, in comparison. But at the moment, it's not too bad in the way the labels, but it is a cost, cost exercise too, is there's going to be changing for food business operators with their addresses. Um, that's, that is literally coming into the market, in, into law in October this year. So it's about time people start to do the change now. Um, changing different emblems, health marks, that type of thing. Um, looking at what's actually in your product. We had a, a product that was stuck at the borders because um, it had gelatine in it. And that was actually um, seen as a composite of um, food. And I had to get vets in. And it was a blooming sweet, for heaven's sake, you wow. know, because it, because it was a food product, you know. And uh, it was, um, as an animal, derived product, gelatine. And you just think, crikey, but no one knows what they're doing. 
Um, And they saw that on the ingredient list and didn't know what to do. So they held it at the um, ports for for ages before it actually, you know, um, went out to Germany. And it was just like, oh, crikey. And we had um, loads of paperwork to do. So it really it's a big challenge. I think things are getting easier now, but it's knowing where your destination is, um, knowing which paperwork to fill in properly, um, what codes to use and things like that. So that's something that I actually can advise on for people um, and knowing what to put on. There's going to be some more changes with olive oil and honey over the next few months regarding how to sort of label that as well um so do you think those do you think some of those challenges have sort of changed the way the food market is i mean has it has it deterred some people from wanting to export or to import yes. some of their ingredients are we becoming I, uh, more yeah, brit- centric <laughs> yeah it's not so much about um people will be importing because they need the different types of food um but there is delays mm. i think people are thinking differently about exporting their product to the eu um you know say a basic sort of cereal bar and uh, they've got a following in france and germany mm-hmm. and they're, they're worried about you know being able to send them across because of the situation with brexit you know would it get stopped they'd have to have different languages on there for different um you know regions German yeah. and French it's it's a big challenge for them do they need to go and do that at the moment get established more in the UK that's what I say um and then start to look at moving across to Europe so do you think it's benefited any businesses Brexit I mean are there any businesses that have been able to kind of play on their Britishness uh perhaps Oh, that's a difficult question, actually. <laughs> I, I haven't seen that. I, I haven't seen that at the moment. All I hear is doom and gloom yeah. from people. <laughs> and maybe it's, it's still very new, though, isn't it? Even though it came into effect last year, sort of January last year, we're still in transition. And a lot of the things won't come into effect until October this year because mm. we're in that transition period. I think that after next year, we will see the results from it more so. But really, if people are concerned, if people listening in have a food business and they're concerned about the effects of Brexit on their business, it would be wise to start seeking some advice at this stage, right, before the changes necessarily come in. Okay, brilliant. Right, so we're going to take a brief pause here, but afterwards, I'd love to talk to you. You've got so much experience in the food industry. (laughs) I'd love to talk about some of the biggest changes that you've seen. So we'll be back in just a moment. Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This. This is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. Welcome back to this show, Let's Do Lunch, with me, Jenny Tishi. I'm a registered nutritionist, but also the author of several cookbooks and an absolute foodie. I am delighted to be joined today by an incredibly knowledgeable Georgine Stewart, who is the founder of The Nutrient Gap and is an absolute expert when it comes to the legal side of food production and food service. We've been talking about all sorts of things, from allergen labelling to the effects of Brexit on the food industry, and Georgina's background and experience and actually some of the things that I want to talk about next relate to that because I'd love to um, ask you Georgina what are the biggest changes that you've seen or witnessed over the course of your time in catering in nutrition and now more so in compliancy and labeling <laughs> well the it's evolving isn't it um, food and the food industry is really evolving and I think the biggest changes have been 
the consumer is pushing for transparency. I think that's really important. And th- this is where the food industry is starting to change because consumers, they, they, they know what they want. They, they know what they want in their food. They want simple ingredients. Uh, clean label is such a big um, thing at the moment. And also how to pronounce the ingredients. You know, um, they don't want a, a, an ingredient that they can't pronounce and they want better quality foods. And, and to sort of like share and reflect their their values, the consumer values. I mean, born in the 70s, it was very much the age of the frozen meal, wasn't it, with some people, the e-numbers. Um, it's all changing now. People don't want that. They don't want that convenience food. And it's all about ethical values as well. And it's, it's really important to see a growing segment of consumers with, like we said before, with special dietary needs, mm. which means, you know, the consumers do want the real ingredients. And it, I think now... The change is going to be the bigger manufacturers are now actually competing with the small companies because the small companies lend itself to the consumer's needs, whereas the bigger manufacturers can't because they're stuck in their way sometimes. But they need to realise that they need to make some of these enormous changes for the better of the people and the planet to be more competitive. And that's what I see uh, the biggest change uh, now. And it's the consumer that's pushing, pushing the industry now rather than the industry pushing the consumer. Yeah, do you know, it's, it's fascinating you say that. It's obviously, I've interviewed quite a lot of people for this podcast from different areas of the food industry, nutrition industry, etc. But one of the things that I would say is really, really true is this connection that the buyer wants to have with the producer. You know, I talked earlier on about how far removed we are from where our food comes from. But one of the things, the trends that I've seen is that when we want to have that connection, when we want to know where our coffee is coming from or who's making our chocolate or who's baking our bread we are much more uh, associated we have much more access to a smaller company and that's one of the advantages that the smaller company is always going to have over the bigger company isn't it yeah absolutely um because they they will know where they're sourcing their ingredients from they they do make it with love you know it's absolutely 100 spot on because they've made it in their kitchen and it's like your mum would make it yes (laughs) and and that's really important and I think people want that now they don't want that high process you know cold blasting chilling and um, Mm. canning and everything else they want to do it like you used to make your pickled onions at home yeah do you know (laughs) that's it isn't it (laughs) (laughs) and even if it looks like the sort of thing that your grandmother would have made you know I think that's probably why increasingly people love going to farmers markets but there's also now markets which are much more accessible for the masses which I love you know much more affordable which I'm seeing come up and I think that's also fantastic we need to make food accessible to all so um what are the some of the industry developments that you would like to see that that aren't there yet but you think could be and that you would like to see well I, I think transparency is a big thing and it is becoming more the norm now I've got to say because um you know food companies need to be held accountable but I think as well it's about food companies trying to sort of share their their story mm. and their work work culture uh, and their inclusion methods and this is where, as we said earlier, with the smaller companies, they can do it. They can actually, this is our story. And people buy from people. And I think that's really important. And I think these bigger companies need to start looking more at their work culture. Uh, and the consumers really educated about products they eat. And they want to start embracing the whole mineral processed foods. And I think 
the fortified food is going to start coming away. We do we do see certain foods that are fortified with vitamins. I, I understand that, but I think the industry really needs to start replacing food with better options that are inherently like nutrient rich and, and providing foods that, as we said earlier, that you make from home that you'd freeze as a batch when you're batch making, and then you'd freeze and proper home cooked meals with proper portion sizes. Um, correct ratio of carbs, protein, fat, that type of thing. Coming away from fad diets and weight loss trends. Um, and, uh, and I do think if they can start eat, making food that is proper food, nutrient-rich food, that's the way the consumer, you know, would like to see it. You know, that's absolutely spot on. I'm, I'm thinking when you say about moving away from diets and weight loss trends and moving towards proper food, I'm thinking about some, just some, I'm a similar age to you. And I think some of the products that you have seen on the market over the years that are designed for the weight loss um, market, yes. are, you know, they're not really food, are they? So wouldn't it no, be wonderful if we could see real food versions of the sorts of things that actually still have the same effect and don't need to have lots of added things that we've never heard of and can't pronounce? Um, and then so that's where you'd like to see it go what do you think are some of the most exciting developments currently taking place in the industry Uh, well I I think it's quite exciting time for vegans for the vegan sector it's basically it it is a little unsettling because it comes away from my ethos and my thoughts because I'd like to see an industry developing is the whole food sector rather than sort of fake food society. Yeah. But there's lots of different ways that the vegans, and I think it's ever so clever, don't get me wrong. And um, I see it as a treat rather than an everyday occurrence with the fake meats and that type of thing for vegan. But what they're doing in the sector is, is just amazing. And it's mind blowing how they can actually get the taste and the look and, the, and everything else the same as real meat it's absolutely <laughs> scary it's like this 3d printing isn't it yes. with, with the just how, it's how? Just like, what? <laughs> well i was thinking when i heard it first i mean oh, what you have to eat a piece of paper then because they printed it out on a piece of paper i didn't quite get it <laughs> but That's... also it's like the increase of novel foods isn't it and mm. functional foods and you know now we've got locusts we can eat and and it's just weird yeah the whole sector's going like really different and it's like are we actually in the real world but you know that's it's exciting don't get me wrong it's actually quite unsettling as well do you know what it is but the other thing that's happening I mean talking about the vegan or plant-based market is that we are seeing some going back to traditional um, methods and um, ways of of Uh, consuming things like pulses you know if you think about some of the companies particularly in the east of england where the climate and the landscape lends itself to that way of growing or that sort of crop um you know where we are getting sort of you know british chickpeas and quinoa and things like that you know the fact that we can uh, and we've got peas you know which is high in protein if we can have pea pasta and uh you know just peas in a kind of peas pudding or whatever it is that we're creating but you know there are some more traditional things that are lower cost um to to make and create but are really nourishing and are plant-based as well yeah absolutely one of one of my my fears though is the fact that a lot of vegan creations are um, classed to me as a vegan junk food and at the moment the government uh, have got the you know the obesity strategy uh, with calories on menus and things like that Um, i'm really concerned with the nation being obese Mm. and People are basically um, opting for vegan because they think it's lower in fat and, and better for you. 
but it's not educating them on, on whole plant-based foods. It's it's more still fake foods and um, junk foods. And it's great. It's like any junk food. You can have it as and where, you know, every yeah. now and then, but not all the time. I've never tell someone they can't have a pizza as long as they're, you know, don't have it every day. But it's a worrying fact that every advert I saw in January for Veganary, it was all junk food. And I yeah. don't know how I feel about that because it's not promoting the vegan sector and how it should be. Yeah, it would be really good, wouldn't it, if it could be used as an opportunity to educate um, yes, as well as advertise. Definitely. I don't know that the companies take that responsibility on board. But um, yeah. are there any particular brands of note that you think deserve a special shout out today? <laughs> well, I do work with quite a few um, big names and small names, but um I think innocence, the innocence drinks have got it right. You know, I, I, I think they've got a great cult following and I think, and they also like to celebrate all their wins and they're not fighting to admit their mistakes. So I think that brand is fantastic. Shout out. I don't know if you follow them at all on social media, but I do when I need a giggle. Absolutely <laughs> hilarious. And you just think it makes you want to buy them because you know that, that when you open that a drink, it's going to be fun. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there are some brands <laughs> yeah. that have got it absolutely right when it comes to the way in which they connect with their audience. They really are yes. bringing you in with their sort of taglines or their their comedy yeah um do you know it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you uh, if people are interested in in what you do and how you do it and i can't imagine for a moment where anybody wouldn't if they're in the food business <laughs> and you know they're facing the challenges of brexit they're facing the challenges of labeling and, and allergen labeling etc where would they find out more about you well, I do have a website, and that's mm-hmm. um, www.thenutrientgap.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook under The Nutrient Gap, and also you can connect with me personally on LinkedIn. That's Georgina Stewart, or through my company page, The Nutrient Gap. So they're um, ways of getting hold of me. So Facebook, sorry, was nutri- The Nutrient Gap, do you say? Yeah, The yeah. Nutrient Gap. Brilliant. Great. So on to our quick fire questions to uh, to bring us up to the hour. So um, if you were to have one last meal on earth, your death row meal, what would it be? Yeah. Sausage, mashed peas and gravy and apple, apple crumble and custard, but more crumble. <laughs> and would this be plant based? Well, it would have to be plant based now. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so apple crumble and uh, and custard on top. Yeah, that's yeah. great. It's lovely that oh, you thought. I love apple crumble. I like the fact you thought about the dessert. Many people that I have on this show, did they get as far as one course? They haven't really thought about anything else. But I'm totally with you. I would definitely have a dessert in there. Um, if you were to have a, a fantasy dinner party and you were to invite four guests, who would they be and why? <laughs> Don't laugh at this, but. <laughs> Alan Titchmarsh. Wow. Okay, I'm not laughing. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I asked him to marry me once when I met him, and he said no, which I was very disappointed about because he was married. So I'm very upset about that. Uh, but basically, so he can do my garden for me because the garden's neglected. So I can sort of like, you know, butter him up to do the garden. Love that. Uh, ben Fogel. Great. Yeah. I think he's amazing with his ventures. And I asked him to marry me once, but he said no. <laughs> There's as <well>. a theme here. <laughs> There's a theme here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't ask this person to marry me, but Vicky, uh, sorry, Vicky Gervais. Oh, definitely. yes. Yeah. Because he's amazing. And I think his sense of humour is, well, so dry and amazing. I just laugh all the time at him. <laughs> and then um, Sophie Kinsella, who writes the Shopaholic books. I, I follow her. She's an author and I follow her so much. I think she's amazing. And I get her. And I think she's actually writing about me every time I read books. <laughs> That's brilliant. 
so me. So yeah, they're the four people I'll definitely invite because I think we'd have a blast. Oh, I love that. And actually, none of those people have been mentioned before. So this is a very original <laughs> list. I really, really appreciate that. Um, and what is your favourite restaurant? Wagamama. Wagamama. Love it. Great choice. Yeah. And they do quite a few um, plant-based and vegan choices, don't yeah, they, they now? Yeah, they do. They're excellent. Really excellent. Yeah. Um, is there a restaurant that you've not eaten at, but that you'd like to? There certainly is. And I bought tickets for um, a weekend away for my mum and dad to do this. And uh, I never did get around to doing it. I kept on saying I'll do it as well. And they had a great time. It's the Pudding Club, (laughs) believe it or not. Where's that? Uh, Chipping Camden it is. It's um, the three-way house. And basically what you do is, and mum and dad had a great time. Um, You can stay overnight. And you you have like a really light lunch. And then you've got an array of, proper school puddings like spotted dick and all sorts of different things that can crumble and you can have as many puddings uh, choice as you want you can keep going up for more but what they do is when you're at the table they pipe the puddings in so they parade the puddings around the room <laughs> this is brilliant really how have i not heard it. of this place <laughs> i know and i'm like i so want to go because and i've never had a chance to go <laughs> That sounds absolutely brilliant. See, I love it when um, eating out is theatre. Because whilst you yes. can prepare lots of things at home that taste great, you're not going to present it by parading around the table with music. Uh, but you might do that in a restaurant. And this is exactly yeah. what you're going to get here by the sounds of it. It yeah. sounds absolutely wonderful. So that's the Pudding yeah. Club in Chipping Camden. Chipping Camden, yes. I'm going to have to, at the end of uh, perhaps the year, my first year of podcasting, I'm going to have to produce a list of all of the places that people have recommended. This would definitely go on one of the the, the top yeah, of the list, definitely. I reckon. And about <laughs> who is your favourite chef? My husband. He's not a chef, but he makes a mean vegan pasta, and I, I just think he's amazing. He's taken over the cooking now because I'm I'm doing my my work from home, and he's just retired, lucky so and so, and he's doing all the cooking and cleaning. And I, that's wonderful can i ask what's in the pasta oh it's loads of things it's uh we put uh, in peas and and peppers mm. spinach um we do pet we do just a mix of everything and then he makes a beautiful tomato sauce to go with it sounds delicious you know with this show is called mm-hmm. let's do lunch and it uh, features just before chris uh, before christmas before lunchtime and i'm always feeling pretty hungry by the time i finish mm-hmm. it and today is no exception um georgina thank you very much for joining us today i really appreciate your time so this has been georgina stewart from the nutrient gap and if you have any questions about anything to do with food labeling uh, the legal side of food production food service then you need to go and check out www.thenutrientgap.com and you've got facebook And uh, if you want to connect with Georgina uh, directly, then it's LinkedIn. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. Do you have anything final you'd like to say, Georgina, before we say goodbye? Oh, it's just been amazing. And thank you so much for for asking me these questions. I could talk to you for hours and I could talk to everybody for hours. And it's it's, it's been a lovely time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Georgina, for your time. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening today. This is Let's Do Lunch on River Radio with me, Jenny Tishi. I'm a registered nutritionist, author of several cookery books. And this show is all about food and nutrition. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do give us a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you for listening today.